Welcome inside the Legends Lounge, where baseball VIPs are hanging out and talking about their life in the game. Special episode here inside the lounge because of who Jim Abbott is, what he became as a human being that only had one arm to use in Major League Baseball and used that arm both to pitch and to field. So what makes it special for me, Alana, is I remember hearing about the story when I was a kid. I actually think I read it in one of those types of children's books about amazing feats. I remember going, what? How does someone, it's not how does someone do that? How does someone do something like that, create a way for him to be involved and successful in the sport and then make it to the sport's highest level for a decade. Scott, we've heard a thousand times how baseball is the game of adjustments. And I don't know that anyone's made a bigger adjustment than Jim Abbott had to do in order to be able to pitch at the highest level. Not only did he make it to the big leagues, he stayed in the big leagues for 10 years. And that was at the top of his game. The man threw a no hitter for the New York Yankees. Talk about adversity, but talk about such a compelling story, a a story of perseverance and of people that supported him along the way and a little stubbornness getting him to where he got. And I think also to supplement what you listen to here at some point, just hit up YouTube to actually see what it looked like what that was big for me too i remember at some point now you know when i was a kid you didn't have youtube but at some point i was like i need to see what this looked like on the mound that was what was truly impressive as well to see him navigate the pitch into getting the glove going and actually be a pretty solid fielder too so we'll get into all of that with jim One of the most unique ball players of all time entering the lounge, 10-year big leaguer, mostly with the Angels and the Yankees, true inspiration, pitching and fielding with one hand in the big leagues for over 250 appearances. That includes 31 complete games, a no-hitter in 1993 when he was with the Yankees. That was during a playoff chase, too. Jim Abbott is inside the lounge. Jim, we'll get into all that, but first off, how's life? Life is good. Life is good. Um, uh, you know, just excited. We, my family and I live in Southern California now. Uh, very lucky. I have two daughters. Um, we spent the summer up in Northern Michigan, which was relaxing and uh, kind of getting back after it now, getting back here and getting ready for the postseason, you know, run here, the playoff push in, in baseball and college football starting. It's, it's one of the great, great times of year. That's what I was going to ask you. I see the Michigan jersey behind you. I know you went to the University of Michigan and we've had uh, some, you know, some folks on our, our show and, and various shows that are Michigan alum. Uh, what's your uh, outlook for their, their football team this year? Well, I'm cautiously optimistic. Last year was magical. <laughs> uh, I, as you can tell, I'm, I'm a little obnoxious about my affiliation with the University of Michigan, but uh, <laughs> I am proud to have gone there. That's my jersey in the back. I, uh, you know, was lucky had that retired a few years back, and and um, it's just been a great school. My my oldest daughter went there. My youngest daughter's there now. Uh, we all attended that fantastic. I know everybody thinks uh, it was fantastic that Ohio State game last year when Michigan finally won after what it seemed like ages. And um, 
you know, so I'm, I'm optimistic. I think on offense, they're going to be good. We'll see on defense. They have some people to replace. One of my favorite memories of my college career, and I know that this is not about Alana Rizzo. This is about Jim Abbott, as it should be, deservedly so. But when I was in college at the University of Colorado, we had to go to the big house. So the University of Colorado was playing Michigan. And that was back in the day when Cordell Stewart was our quarterback. We had Michael Westbrook and Blake Anderson. And I was in my dorm room in Michigan, or excuse me, in Boulder, while the team was in Michigan. And, and the Hail Mary, Jim, I know you know it well. Cordell Stewart throws it, you know, pass across the field. Hail Mary all the way. It, you know, Blake Anderson tips it into the hands of Michael Westbrook in the end zone. And Boulder erupted. And you could probably hear us in Ann Arbor screaming our heads off. And I don't know that Colorado's ever had a more exciting, exhilarating win. And it's hard to even think if we even have a football team anymore. But that is what my one Michigan memory. So I, I had to share that with you. So thanks so much for listening to that. Well, uh, this podcast is over. I'm done. After that <laughs> <laughs> thanks, so, Alana. We lost sorry, you. Probably should have done that <laughs> what, do you, what do you think? Alana and I actually, we, we both worked with, there's one in particular producer that I can remember from, from like way back years ago at MLB, who was just the biggest, you know, Michigan sports fan. And I've come across this quite a bit, both from people like you that, that grew up in Michigan, but also even those that, attend the school from other spots. Do you think that the pride factor is up there amongst almost any other school in the country in terms of how deep it goes, whether you attend or you grew up in the area afterward and it becomes, you know, ingrained in the fabric of your life and your family? It is pretty ingrained. I, you know, I know that every college has their passionate fans and the people who grew up, you know, rooting for that school and their programs um, I grew up, you know, in Flint, Michigan, which is a fairly tough town. Uh, and there was a, there was a, my hero was a guy named Rick Leach who played uh, quarterback at Michigan. He ended up being drafted by the Detroit Tigers. Uh, he was just, he was a lefty and he, you know, he was just my guy. Right. So he kind of got me, it started on rooting for the university. And after my senior year in, in high school, I was actually drafted by the Toronto Blue Jays uh, late in the draft, and, and I was offered a scholarship at Michigan. And, and I got to tell people that that's the best decision my mom ever made for me because I went <laughs> to school. But truth be told, as soon as they offered me, you know, that Michigan jersey right there, um, I was going to Ann Arbor. And, and uh, really, it made all the difference in my life, to be honest, in terms of kind of growing up, you know, uh, maturing a little bit, both athletically and personally. So, I'm thankful for the affiliation and, and it's fun to be able to watch the sports going forward. Jim, we'll get into your playing career uh, at length here, but what interests me so much about you and the, and the few times I've had the privilege to talk to you is just how much you've inspired hundreds of people uh, in your lifetime. And, you know, you get to play a sport that 1% of the world says that they are able to do. But I, I wonder this, when you have a career like you've had post playing and you're an inspirational speaker and a motivational speaker, are there times where you have people come up to you that have motivated you? Oh, all the time. You know, um, you know my parents were my heroes. You know, I, um, they had me at a very early age and uh, the path was very uncertain. I don't think that they had any idea of how they were going to, you know, make it through these sort of tur turbulent waters you know they 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 were young they were starting off on their own they were discovering each other 
Um, you know, they had me and I was born differently, born missing my right hand. And, and, and back then, you know, we just didn't have the information outlets that you have now. And, and so um, they searched, you know, they tried different things for me. And, and I, I'm just so thankful for their courage and their strength at that time. You know, I tried a, a metal hook as a prosthetic and they sent me to different clinics and different doctors and different things. And, and ultimately, none of that really was for me. I was just went about things in a natural way and that's made things easiest. Um, so in a roundabout way, uh, the parents are my heroes, you know, they inspire me a lot. I, I met a lot of families, uh, from Yankee stadium to Texas, to Oakland, to everywhere in the country. And, you know, meeting the kids who were similar as, as me facing similar challenges, um, was incredibly inspiring, but I always felt that they would be okay. I, I, I didn't feel that they had the uncertainty and the fear maybe that parents felt. So, um, parents who go out there and face challenges that maybe they weren't expecting. Uh, those are the people that inspire me. Take us through your conversations. Let's get into the athletic side of things. So obviously if you look at the cards that you're dealt, your parents, uh, I mean, this is my first time talking to you in person, but reading about, for example, your parents suggesting, Hey, maybe soccer is a good sport to explore. <laughs> and you're like, nah, I'm going to use sports with my hands and I'm going to make it work. And it's like <laughs> double digit years in the bigs with, with the accolades, but even going backwards more towards childhood, playing football, quarterback, punting, etc. Take us through your mindset of how you said, I am going to do this anyway and make it work. And the conversations that went down with your parents, I'm sure they were more of the suggestive type. And then you, you know, went back and I don't, right. It wasn't like, Hey, you are definitely going to play this or do this because you were your own self and you made those decisions. Yeah. Thanks guy. You know, I, um, gosh, I think everyone sees you arrive you know, in a big league uniform and, and feels that there was some gilded path, you know, some smooth <laughs> road that everybody just travels along. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're a, you're, you're hosting shows on MLB network and, you know, it's, it's, but you know that each of us goes through, um, you know, ups and downs and it, and it, it was very tumultuous. Uh, I didn't always have the answers. Um, it, it, a lot of it comes down to creativity. And, and believing that there's an answer and, and maybe not having it, maybe not having it overnight, like trying to switch the glove on and off with my dad to play catch and, and struggling and dropping the ball and dropping the glove and, and not knowing how to quite hold a bat. Um, and then coming back the next day and doing it and going to bed the next night, not knowing how to do it and then do it again, you know? So truth be told, I was surrounded by amazing people. And, and I, I give a lot of credit for, for my story, but, uh, and I fought hard. I'd hated losing and I had a great ambition, um, but I had great coaches and parents and teachers who helped me to find those little different strategies, those little different ways of going about things that made all the difference in my life. And so, you know, whether it's athletically or scholastically or whatever, you know, when I meet kids like me, um, I think the first step is being open-minded to solutions, you know, finding a different way to do things. Um, and that, that's just what you have to do, whether it's buttoning a, you know, your shirt or tying your shoes or, or switching the glove on and off. There's, there's sometimes there's just not another paradigm to follow. 
Can you remember the first day you picked up a baseball? <laughs> That's a great question. I, I kind of remember the time frame. I don't know if I remember the specific day, but I remember as a kid, and I don't want to be too, too cliche or, uh, but I love, I, I really wanted to play baseball, right? I mean, I loved all sports. My friends were playing them. And so I wanted to get involved and, my dad bought me a baseball glove down at the drugstore. And I'm just not sure when a drugstore became an outlet for buying baseball gloves, but, uh, you know, he brought it home and I just remember the smell of that. I just remember a baseball glove and, you know, we went out in the front yard and, and tried to play catch. And then we worked on breaking in the glove probably for longer than we worked on playing catch and, and, and so I just always was sort of infatuated with the game and I was lucky. I had a, you know, I was born missing my right hand, but I was born with a good left arm and, and I could throw, I really, I, you know, I, anything I picked up, whether it was a stone or softball or Frisbee, you know, I could always throw things. So I said, maybe this is a sport that it might, you know, might be my path. You know, it's funny that you say that Jim, and I don't know, um, if you're a man that, you know, is led by faith, but Julio Urias, who's a left-handed pitcher, of course, for the Los Angeles Dodgers, he had to have surgery on his left eye. He, he has a very difficult time seeing out of his left eye. So he's had surgery and he, you know, he wears glasses when he pitches and those types of things. But he said that, you know, God gave, God gave me a bum left eye, but a great left arm. Do you follow that philosophy a bit? I do follow that philosophy a little bit, Alana. Um, you know, the focus is on what you've been given. You know, and, and a lot of people focus, you know, you can focus on, you know, my right hand and, and maybe what could be seen as a deficit or uh, hate the word handicap, but, you know, it's been used a lot. Um, but to be honest, you know, I was a good athlete. You know, I could run, I could throw, I could jump. I loved basketball. I played football. I ran cross country and threw up after every race, but I ran cross country, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so. I don't ever really get the feeling that when I went out there to compete, there was anybody feeling sympathy for me or sorry for me. You know, it was like, well, this kind of makes sense. He should probably be doing this. So the focus definitely on what has been given rather than taken away. Yeah. But you didn't just play football. You were the quarterback of the football team. I mean, you could have played positions that didn't really involve handling the football, the big skin, but you chose the hardest position on the team. Why? Well, I was told that that's what I was going to play. I, I, I never played football before. And my my varsity baseball coach was the defensive coordinator on the team. And he I don't think he thought I was tough enough, to be honest. So he kept threatening me with playing football. He said, you're going to play football and, you know, we're going to get you beat up a little bit. That's, a, that's just the way it was back then. And, uh, sure enough, you know, varsity practice started up and they needed a backup quarterback. They had a really good starting quarterback on, that, on my team. And we had a state championship caliber team in Michigan. Uh, but they called me up and said, get down here. You're playing. And, um, you know, I, I said, hey, I've never played football before. I didn't know how to put any of the pads on. I didn't know how to take the snap. And, and those coaches, you know, when I when I mentioned mentors and people who made a difference, I think of them, you know, because they thought about, you know, maybe using my right forearm as a hand and getting down lower to get that football. And, and so, um, yes, it's, it seems like the hardest position to play, um, but it, all it took was small adjustments, right? So, so you know, I would, to hand the running back the ball on my left, I would just kind of grab the end of it instead of the orthodox way that quarterbacks <laughs> usually do. So 
there always seemed to be a way to sort of figure it out and get the job done. And, and um, so I, I liked playing football. It was a lot of fun. Friday Night Lights, there's nothing like it. <laughs> no doubt. So then on the baseball side, was there a moment when you realized this could be my career? Was that picked up? I mean, of course you got drafted. So, and then still went to school, but at that point you're like, okay, there is interest in, in me, even if it's in later rounds, but was there a time say in high school where you're blown by opponents and you're going, okay, this might be a thing, maybe some conversations with scouts as well. You know, truth be told, not really. I was, I was uh, very incremental in, in my career. I, I wanted um, you know, I wanted to play on the little league team with my neighborhood buddies and I wanted to make the high school team. And then when I was doing well there, there was a good Connie Mack team in Flint, Michigan that I wanted to be a part of. And I used to see them with their jackets on around town. And, you know, I wanted to make that team. And then, um, and then it was college. You know, I, I really, I really wanted to play college baseball, even though I was drafted by the Blue Jays, it really wasn't a consideration all that much, um, and I didn't really even envision it in my mind. It just seemed too far off. I, you know, the Blue Jays offered me a decent offer back then and offered to pay for college and then said I was going to Medicine Hat, wherever Medicine Hat is. And that just seemed like somewhere else, you know. And, and so it wasn't until I played on the Olympic. I played for two USA teams. I played for the Pan Am team and after my sophomore year, and I played for the Olympic team. And... I was playing with really good players. I mean, I, you know, Greg Olson, Robin Ventura, Tino Martinez, Ben McDonald, Andy Bennis, Charles Nagy. I mean, I, I hate Eddie Sprague. I hate to leave anybody off because, and all these were first round draft picks. You know, they were all, and I was holding my own and I was doing well on that team and, and starting big games. And, and it, it wasn't until I started looking around that locker room and seeing the opportunities they were getting that I felt like, you know, maybe if I can play with these guys, the next step is, is in right in front of you. And, and so um, that's when I started to believe that maybe I could play professional baseball. You get drafted eighth overall in 88 by the Angels. You make the opening day roster in 89 without having played a single minor league game. Can you please tell me how you did that? Because that's unheard of. <laughs> well, the timing was beautiful because the Olympics the previous summer were in September. So we played all summer and you were a major league baseball and the Olympic team had an agreement that you could sign your signing bonus. You couldn't accept any money, but you could sign it and then go play for the team until the end of September. And by that time, the professional season minor leagues was pretty much over. So the Angels just said, you rest up. You've pitched a lot this summer and we'll see you in spring training. Hmm. And so I came to spring training and they invited me to major league spring training. And you know, I'm looking around at Bert Blylevin and Lance Parrish and Wally Joyner and Chuck Finley, all these guys. And, um, and I pitched well, I pitched well in spring training. That, uh, Apparently. Yeah. <laughs> I would, there was an opening in the, in the rotation and I was the fifth starter. So I made the team out of spring training and uh, I believe me, I was pinching myself. I was 21 years old in the big leagues coming to Cal Southern California yeah. for the first time in my life. I was like, man, this is good living. <laughs> <laughs> a little different weather than Flint, Michigan or wherever yeah. that place was. The Blue Jays were going to send you. <laughs> yes, exactly right. <laughs> and just not having to go through the crap of the minor leagues, like just to be real. Right. I mean, there's a lot that goes into it for 99.9% of ballplayers that are drafted in terms of development but you know the bus rides the the pay everything else that goes along with it to not have to deal with all of that 
was was it a blessing and a curse? I mean, you're a humble guy in general. I think it humbles many ball players that are moving up the the ranks and especially say if you're coming from a big school nowadays, your school life is going to be much more glamorous than your minor league life. So you ditched all of that, but it seems like you had the right head on your shoulders, even at a young age to be able to go right to the bigs and be okay and not be like, this is all too much too fast. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, if you could ask anybody on those USA teams, um, it, most of those guys who made it, made it pretty quick because that in itself was like a minor league uh, travel experience. You know, we, we carried our bags everywhere. We, we rode on buses all over the United States playing exhibitions. We played all over the world. We played in Japan and Korea. We played in Cuba. We played in Italy. Um, we, we had a lot of media exposure. We had a lot of exposure to, to important games, world championships and, you know, the Olympics. We won a gold medal. Um, so all those experiences in a way were sort of a de facto preparatory school for professional baseball. And, and, um, you know, there was some learning on the job. I'll admit when I got there, I, I, I was a little, you know, I was a little raw, but, um, for all the other stuff, I, I was, I feel like pretty well prepared. So what did your teammates say about you, especially at the big league level, you enter the big league level, you didn't play in the minors you are coming with one of the more unique stories of all time, right? You're, you're pitching and you're fielding with one hand. What were some of the conversations or, or thoughts? And especially when you first got to the big leagues from, from teammates that you played with. Overwhelmingly and very touchingly supportive. Um, I, you know, there's the, I probably date myself a little bit here, but I grew up a Detroit Tigers fan and, and, in the heyday, they had Alan Trammell, Lou Whitaker, you know, and Lance Parrish. Lance Parrish was their catcher. And Lance, back when I was growing up, had this black glove. And the outline of it, I've never seen anybody use it anymore, but the outline of it was this bright fluorescent orange, I guess. So, as you know, you could see it as a target. And that's my, I watched that on TV so many times, I can't even begin to tell you. And then, Spring training, I walk in, 21 years old, I walk out to the mound, I look in, and there's Lance Parrish with that glove pointing at me. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. You know? <laughs> that's, that's exactly the image I grew up with. Jack Morris pitching to him. And, and, and so um, we had a veteran team. Burt Blylevin was on the team, you know, Hall of Famer. And, uh, I could go down the list and, and just tell you how, how many dinners those guys took me out to you know, how many places they showed me around and, and the traveling. And, um, you know, I was just surrounded by support. And, and Marcel Latchman was my pitching coach on that team, Gosh. a wonderful human being, one of my heroes to this day. Um, and so I, I was lucky. I was the rookie with, you know, with all the big brothers really around. And, and I got to kind of mesh into that whole thing. Jim, what do you consider the most important outing of all of the times you took the ball? Well, you know, the no-hitter, I pitched a no-hitter for the Yankees in Yankee Stadium. Um, and, you know, I had no idea what was coming that day. I didn't really have, I hadn't really had a great year. I'd been traded from the Angels to the Yankees. It was kind of a tumultuous season. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't really pitch to the expectations of the Yankee fans or the Yankee organization. Nobody but, ever does, Jim. Yeah. Nobody <laughs> ever does. <laughs> no, that's the truth. That's a different, different animal in New York. No question about it. Um, but that game came out of the blue, came against the Cleveland Indians who had a, had a really good team. And I'm, I didn't really know the, the story that would come out of that so much yeah it was personally gratifying my team was great the memory is amazing but my my goal had always been not just to make it I wanted to be good and and I probably missed a few opportunities to be a better role model in my playing days um, because I thought the focus should be performance I really did I thought yes participating is good making it is good but to be able to tell the story of getting there and doing well is something that I really wanted to happen. And, and, and so in some strange ways, even though my career had a little bit of everything, that no-hitter has kind of allowed for that story to be told. So many people have sort of grabbed onto that. When I go back to New York, people yell across the street. They remember the date. You know, I, I mean, that's just Yankee fans. But yeah. But you know, so many kids and parents, you know, had sort of had that to sort of look to. Um, and so that would be probably the most impactful. I, I think it was so gratifying personally, but also the fact that so many people to this day sort of let, latch on to it means, means the world to me. How would you have been a better role model? From the outside looking in, I can't imagine you being anything but an exceptional role model Are you, in terms of with your teammates or, or what do you mean by that? Well, it's a selfish pursuit, right? You've been around, you guys have been around ballparks quite a bit. And I think most of the great ones are selfish though. Sometimes you need to be to succeed at the level that you want to at that big stage. It is, you have to. And, and it's a very uh, insulated world too, right? I mean, you, you can't always have the breadth of experience and connection with people that maybe you would like to have, right? When pe- so many people are asking uh, for a little bit of your time. And, and, and so there was probably a few interactions that I turned down, you know, that I, that I felt like, Hey, if I'm going to try to be the best I can be, if, if I can, I need to gain my teammates respect as well. Right. If I'm constantly on a soapbox, if I'm constantly trying to, you know, be this other person, um, that's just not who I wanted to be at the time. And I think maybe, so maybe there was a, I was my, I tried to let the performance be the example. And, and so I'm, I'm proud of that decision. I know uh, at the end of my career, there wasn't a stone left unturned. There's not a, a, a physical outlet. I didn't try. There's not a mental performance book. I didn't read or coach. I didn't talk to. And, 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 and that was important. It, you had to be that way to try to succeed at that level. There is someone that would at least partially disagree with what you're talking about. It seems like at least at some point in your career with the Yanks, George Steinbrenner said, Hey, he's, he's doing so much charity work. <laughs> was there, <laughs> was there any back and forth there? Hey, I want him. I mean, just like you said, it's almost going against the grain of what you're talking about. You're like, I was so hyper-focused that sometimes, you know, I feel bad turning stuff down. Meanwhile, your owner who at, at the time, the late grave, but was uh, at least at one point vocal about what you were up to off the field, which was just constantly giving back. Were there deeper conversations about that? 
<laughs> well, I think if I would have been like 17 and five, you wouldn't have cared at all what I was doing. <laughs> off the field. But, uh, uh, you know, I was, you know, I was a little surprised by that because I really didn't feel like I was doing all that much or all that more than, than a lot of teammates were. He was just, maybe he was trying to protect me in his own way. You know, I think maybe that's, he was an interesting man and, and uh, <laughs> I, I didn't always see eye to eye with what he was thinking or what he was saying and his, but there was a method to his madness and, and what he created there with the Yankees. And um, it was great to play. It was great to play there. You know what your uh, affinity for philanthropy hasn't stopped, which I think is tremendous. Tell me a little bit more, if you don't mind about Amigos de los Niños and what you're doing with them. Yeah. Amigos de los Niños is a great program here in Southern California uh, that uh, it's a group, of, it's a group um, here in Orange County that has sort of quietly that I've been involved with actually took over for Rick Burleson years and years ago. Rick Burleson, the great uh, Red Sox and, and um, Angel shortstop uh, worked with them and they, they just work with small children's charities in the area. They have a few fundraisers a year and they write them a check, very quiet, very under the radar, uh, allows for some great experiences and they're a great program here and um, you know, I do some work with the Boys and Girls Club back in Flint, Michigan as well. I just came back from an event there and, and uh, after school programs, you know, the kind of support that I had as a kid with two working parents. And, um, you know, it's important. I, I don't want to give the impression that I spend every single moment in, in some altruistic fashion. Uh, a lot of people do a lot more than me, but, um, uh, you know, I've been lucky to have the affiliations that I've had. Yeah, but on the motivational speaker front, uh, I'll personalize this just for a moment. I talk a lot. That's our jobs. So uh, at one point, a friend of mine was doing motivational speaking and public speaking you know, at, at schools, whatever. There's There are all kinds of programs and agencies for that. And he was like, hey, you should get involved in this. You love to talk. You love to help kids <laughs> with broadcasting, all of that. So this agency, there's there's... There's a reason for this. The agency sends me um, a questionnaire about, you know, adversity and what you've overcome and uniqueness of your storyline. And I was thinking back to that. And I was like, eh, I mean, my story is okay. Your story plays <laughs> when you're going to, you know, speak to children, speak to a school, speak to a team. So how much speaking are you doing and, and have you done, especially post playing career? And how does that go? Um, you know, I've done a lot. I, I, I have um, just naturally, you know, playing in the big leagues, you sort of are thrust in these roles, with, you know, whatever at banquets and different things where you end up, you know, having to talk a little bit. Um, there's a public speaking teacher at University of Michigan who probably can't believe that I've been able to do anything in this field whatsoever. Um, but it took me a while, you know, I was, I was sort of, I retired in my early 30s. I desperately wished I was still playing baseball mm -hmm. um, and I missed it. And a lot of people came to me and said, you should try this speaking in, the, in much the same way. They encouraged me to try. And I stumbled and fumbled with it. And, you know, I'm, I'm naturally kind of a shy person. My mouth got dry. I always have this voice on my shoulder say, get off the stage, shut up. Nobody cares. <laughs> and that was the biggest, that was the biggest adversary, to be honest, was that self-doubt. Um, but what's amazing to me is I discovered, and I, my last year with the Angels, I was two and 18. 
high. And I had a seven earned run, earned run average. It's where I live. It's where my wife and I raise our kids. And I was embarrassed. You know, I was hurt and, and I hid. And, and I felt like everybody saw that record taped to my forehead. And, and, and I carried that with me everywhere. And, and so my career, you know, I went on to play a little bit more. I made a comeback and it was fine. But speaking gave me the opportunity not only to sort of think about my career and the places I'd been and place things to be proud of. Um, but I also went to places in Iowa and Wisconsin and Washington and all over the country and discovered again how much people love baseball, not in major league cities and rural cities and places, you know, you wouldn't even think. And they they knew who I was, you know, they knew the story and they attached to it and they rooted for you. And it, and in some ways it gave back as much to me as, as is maybe anything that I said to them. So um, I've really come to get a lot from it. I missed it during COVID and, you know, schedule starting to play out a little bit. Uh, my wife's happy to get me out of the house too. So uh, it, it is nice to have something to do post baseball. Cause if you're not going to be a coach and you don't, you, it, it's hard to find that path, you know, something rewarding. Do you still watch baseball, Jim, or are, do you follow today's game? I do. I follow the game. Um, you know, I don't watch it as intently as I used to. Um, but like a lot of my friends, you know, when we're cooking dinner or barbecue and that, you know, instead of background music, the ball game's on, you know, I was watching the game last night and, and uh, it, it, it's amazing. The game is the, these athletes now, I mean, the, the pitching, the athleticism, the velocity, the power, the approach. Um, I just marvel at, at, you know, who walks out of that dugout, you know, all day long, every night, accessible on almost every channel. It's pretty amazing. Which actually leads me to another question before we let you go. Um, is it fair, in your opinion, to compare players from different eras? I have this conversation all the time with my lovable lunatic co-host, uh, Chris Russo. He always wants to compare Aaron Judge um, or Shohei Otani or whatever. Everyone, every, no one's as good as Babe Ruth. I don't know if you know this or not, Jim Abbott, but nobody's as good as Babe Ruth, according to Chris. So I'm, I'm wondering... What is your opinion of comparing players in different eras? Because I don't think it's the same game. What's your take? It's not the same game. I don't, I don't care what anybody says. It's, it's just not. I mean, even from when I played not too long ago, um, although we had some, we had athleticism. And I remember those Bash brothers, the Oakland A's, <laughs> yeah. they, they say that they weren't anymore as more, you know, they were, they were incredible. Whatever was going on, I don't know, but they were incredible. <laughs> and, and, um, you know, it's funny. We used to on the Angels, and and forgive me for this, but we used to have this coach on the Angels. His name was Jimmy Reese, and Jimmy was about in his early eighties when I got there. And he he would hit fungos to us in the outfield. We'd work on our pitching, and he and I established a you know a pretty friendly relationship. And I would he would sit in the dugout for games, and he would chart pitches, and I would always you know tease him. I'd say you know I'd look at somebody. And I'd say that guy, you know, would be a mediocre first baseman from, you know, the Kansas City Royals or whatever. And I would say, Jimmy, that guy's twice the player that Babe Ruth is. There's no question about it. He'd get, a, he'd get all upset. You know, he'd throw stuff at me. What do you all know what you're arms. talking about? Yeah. So the debate will go on and on and on. But if you look at the analytics of the game and you look at the way they can quantify it and study it now, I, I, 
it's just played at a higher level. Whether or not that's more entertaining, I don't know. Yeah, that's a different conversation. That's but a different yes. conversation. And, and I don't, you know, some of the celebrations and everything, I, you know, I can really <laughs> get into the old crotchety guy here, but uh, you have to marvel at the athletes that are stepping out of the dugout each and every night. Have you come across many current big leaguers? You know, have you met any current big leaguers? And I, I'm just saying, because now I'm going to say this in two ways. One, think your story resonates and it's not like you pitched in the thirties or the forties, like this is nineties. Right. And, but at the same time, a lot of times when I'm calling games now, I'm looking at the DOB, the date of birth. And I'm like, this dude's born in 2000 or whatever. Oh, so. zip it, zip it. Are you even mid thirties yet, Scott? <laughs> I am exactly mid thirties. Uh, yes, I, I am. You're a puppy, zip it. But, but I know now I would be an old washed up ball player at this point <laughs> with, with my age versus the 23 year olds I'm calling games for. So, you know, I knew your story growing up. So uh, did, have you met anyone there? And I just, I think on the same realm of public speaking, I mean, sometimes I'm not saying to do this, but I'm just saying, you know, sometimes teams will bring someone in. I mean, I know when I was playing back when I was a kid, if, if I heard a story like yours or, or you came to a team and, and you spoke about you know, what you've been through and also just how you were able to figure out how to succeed. Even for some current ball players, I think this is always big, right? To provide perspective for them. A lot of them, Alana knows this well, they'll like start a family, have a kid and they're like, you know what? Complaining about this one little thing. I'm up all night with a toddler now or whatever, you know, it's not that bad, you know, dad strength. So I just think that your story, same thing. You're like, I, I went out and pitched with with one hand and I had to persevere and figure out how to do this multi-sports star, make it in the bigs, no hitter, the whole deal. So has any of that ever occurred? Well, I haven't been in the last couple of years um, be, because of COVID and just some different switches in lifestyle. But um, I went to spring training for several years with the angels as a guest instructor. And, um, you know, Mike Socia was there and he was always kind enough to ask me to, you know, one of the mornings to get up and introduce myself to the team. And, and uh, I did find I had to sort of re-familiarize myself. I, 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 there were some young guys in the room, you know, <laughs> early call-ups. And, and I said, well, wait a minute. I know my story probably doesn't make sense to you, you know, so I'd take my glove and I'd kind of demonstrate how I used to switch things on and off. And, and uh, yeah, you know, I'm, it, is, it is amazing how time moves on. And, and uh, but I am still incredibly gratified at how many people tell the story still um, and attach themselves to the story. And, and I get invited to do so many great things and, and being a part of the major league. And I, I want to say, forgive me for this fraternity, Alana, but it really is more than that nowadays. I think it didn't come. No, no problem at all. I yeah, get it. Um, but it's a great club to belong to. It's great to, to be welcomed into those environments and, and to have met uh, the people that I had a chance to meet. And, and uh, I, you know, it's, it's a lifelong connection that you never lose. Yeah. And for anyone that wants to learn even more about Jim's story, there's an autobiography too that was uh, published at one point called Imperfect and Improbable Life. So I'm sure you can find that still and, and pick it up somewhere. And, and even if it's somehow not being published, I'm sure it is, but you can probably pick it up on eBay or wherever you can find it. So, and Google it, but Jim, Hey, this was, this was really a pleasure. Uh, we enjoyed it. Thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us inside the lounge. Well, Scott, Alana, thank you guys so much for having me. And uh, it's 
great to be added to your long list of distinguished guests. I'm very impressed <laughs> about it. So thank it you, you guys. Pleasure. Thank you, Jim. Yeah, you deserve to be there. Thank Keep you. It up. All right. Take care. Thanks. Okay, Alana, so here's the thing with that interview, in addition to the audio portion, of course, wherever you're getting this, wherever you're listening, maybe on Sirius, I would advise you to hit up social to actually see, because we'll post clips, the reaction of Jim when he is addressing some of our questions, because you saw it. I don't want to say he wasn't tearing up, but motions were strong sometimes. Like I'm thinking back to when I said, hey, how did your teammates receive you? When you're up there, you didn't even do any minor league ball. You're coming in with a completely unique situation in terms of how you're able to pitch and field and, and how you've gotten there. Of course, you're thinking there's respect, but you're also a rookie. So, and, and it just seemed like throughout his whole life, he was welcomed with open arms and he had a ton of guidance and really strong mentors to get him to where he was. So, you know, at, at times, did you feel him choking up a little bit? I just think he appreciates everything that he's gone through and, and never loses sight of what he had to go through, but also how successful he was able to be despite the fact, Scott, he was born with a deformed right arm ending right where his wrist was supposed to be. He never developed a right hand and he pitched in the big leagues and hit in the big leagues. And he was a big leaguer for primarily for the California Angels for 10 years, but he never let that, he doesn't like the word handicap. You heard him say it there, but he never let his physical challenges stop him and to never play a game in the minor leagues and to play a decade in the bigs that's incredibly impressive regardless if you have all of your faculties and, and you know you're a healthy being that's true we didn't even get to the hitting part but i mean he was a slugger when he was growing <laughs> up he was hitting homers and then even he he didn't get much time in the national league and back yeah, then couple, you know he's mostly hits. an american he, he league finished, guy. right he finished with the brewers right yes. so he had an opportunity to hit that was back in the day when pitchers hit not that long ago we obviously have the designated hitter now in both mm -hmm. leagues but he had to swing a bat he figured out a way to do it he did amazing story really really enjoyed it uh, with Mr. Abbott. Now let's move on to this week in baseball. I've got two for you. We've got time for two. Let's start with, uh, we're, we're going really far back in time uh, for the first one. September 5 in 1931. You're going to have to bear with me here. I will try and speed up on the story, but Hack Wilson, who I know that name based on the RBI record. He's, I think he's the RBI record guy still at like 191 or something, but he was in trouble with the Cubs. He was, uh, there, there were some alcoholic beverages involved and, and he wasn't, I guess he wasn't hitting well, maybe because of that, that makes sense. So they, they had him in the bullpen warming up pitchers. And then the manager back then was Rogers Hornsby, who's a, a legendary ball player and he didn't have enough outfielders. So he puts in a pitcher, Bud Teachout in left field. And then, so they're on the train, of course, to Chicago, back to Chicago that night and Hack Wilson is arguing with two baseball writers. And then Pat Malone wanders by, joins in on the argument. Um, admittedly, I don't even know who Pat Malone is. I'm guessing this is another ball player. Uh, and Malone apparently encourages Wilson to get after it, and he um, slugs both writers. <laughs> he punched them. <laughs> Malone's fined 500 bucks for his actions. <laughs> 
This is precisely why you don't get to travel with the team as a journalist anymore, unless you specifically <laughs> work for the team because of this incident back in 1931 with Hack Wilson. Thanks a lot. Exactly. Also, they're not traveling on trains anymore. Maybe the train just brought out the frustrations <laughs> in people. Like they were just, you know, when that train stops in the middle of nowhere and then you're paused for an hour. Anyway, not that there's uh, not enough travel delay issues as it is, but Malone's fine 500 bucks, which back then was probably yeah, like a, a lot million. of money. Yeah, it's a lot of money. <laughs> and then the club president, uh, Bill Veek, who's a very famous name in baseball history, suspended Hack Wilson without pay for the rest of the season. Bill yeah. Beck is, cre- is created is uh, credited rather with the one that put in the Ivy at Wrigley Field. So mm-hmm. there you have that. So Hack Wilson. 1930 had 56 home runs and 191 RBI. Not bad, not bad. 56 long balls and 191 stakes. And I remember, yeah, no one's touching that. Yeah, and I remember, because uh, I, I, I used to play, there was a, a video game I'd play like on my Game Boy and I, I was playing as the Cubs trying to set the RBI record. And I was like, how do, is this real? Who's this hack Wilson yeah. guy? He was not a hack, Scott. No, he was not. And you, I'll bring your joke um, from off air to on the air. Uh, He was suspended without pay for the rest of the season. (laughs) It's like, what was it, thirteen bucks? Said what? Did they get? Did they get suspended thirteen bucks because he (laughs) paid the rest of the year? Yeah. Pay was not like it uh, is nowadays, to say the least. I've got, I've got time for one more. Um, This one, much more current, September six, two thousand three. Uh, Mark Pryor's pitching in this game um, for the Cubbies against the Brewers. They win, but Randall Simon hits a two-run homer for Chicago, and they're cheering because it's announced. When it says announced on here, I'm like, did they announce it on, like, the PA? All 330, can you imagine? All 330 fans sitting in Section 112 behind the Cubs dugout, you receive free Polish sausages, courtesy of Simon, because the last time he was at Miller Park, he was a pirate on July 9th of that season. And he um, smacked uh, one of these sausage mascots, but that's just like a, a person that was participating in the mascot race, which is the sausage race. So uh, it all comes full circle and he gives back to the community. Oh, let me tell you about coming full circle. So I remember that distinctly when Randall Simon smacked um, the Polish sausage on the head, but again, they're just normal people running this race. And by normal, I mean, I did this thing. So imagine CC Sabathia's Brewer debut. Remember when the Brewers got CC as a rental, he was making his home debut as a member of the brew crew. Well, Alana Rizzo decides it's a good idea because, oh, I would love to run the sausage race. Can't be that hard, right? Okay. So the visiting, or excuse me, the home clubhouse manager gave me a pair of running shoes to run this thing. I originally wanted to be the chorizo because I was like, all right, I'm Latin, I'm Cuban, and I'm Italian. Let me represent I'm going to get be the chorizo, which obviously I know is a Mexican sausage. But the point is, I wanted to be the chorizo. Scott, when I tell you the head of that thing was so heavy, I could not stand upright. So they're like, you can be the hot dog because the hot dog doesn't have a hat. So it wasn't as heavy. So I put the hot dog costume on. Oh, my gosh. You cannot see out of the peripheral view at all. And you can only go a little a little bit forward or a little bit backward, or you will fall down. So I'm trying to run this race. Imagine it's a packed Miller Park. CeCe's, CeCe's about to, you know, take the hill, whatever. He's already pitched. I can't even remember what it was, but it was it was a packed house. And I'm going down the third baseline and I'm, you know, trying to high five the fans. I can't even do that without falling over. So everyone takes off. And I literally and figuratively got 
smoked in the sausage race. They are round their behind home plate, rounding going up the first baseline. I was so slow that I ran into the Rockies dugout and sat next to Matt Holiday because I was so slow. I was like, this is ridiculous. I never would have finished the dang race. Never again. Be careful what you wish for, Scott Braun, because someone's going to give you a pair of running shoes and then you're going to have to show what you can't do in front of thousands, tens of thousands of people. I want none of it. I just like to look at it from afar and make fun of it. I don't want first oh. pitches. I don't want sausage races. I don't want any of that. Plus, and they I need to a, update I a, those. Oh, I was a runner to. back in the day, and yeah. I was absolutely destroyed and embarrassed. I embarrassed my family. I embarrassed the Rizzo name. I mean, really, it was just, it was, it was very sad. You said it right, though. I mean, insert, you know, smoked sausage jokes <laughs> right there, right? Like <laughs> cooked, fried, whatever. It I did mean, not work smoke. out. So everyone has homework, okay? As we close the lounge this week, <laughs> two things. Definitely look up Jim Abbott pitching and hitting and see how amazing it looked and see if you can dig into the archives and find Alana Rizzo's appearance on CC Sabathia's Milwaukee debut, which is one of like the Sabathia's biggest days of the, of, of the decade oh. there. Oh my gosh, <laughs> so embarrassing. All right, time to eat. Lounge is close. <laughs> <laughs> The Legends Lounge Podcast is brought to you by Major League Alumni Marketing. Hit us with questions or comments at legendslounge at mlbpaa.com. Check out our memorabilia at mlamauthentics.com. Later, Legends. Baseball Legends Lounge is part of the SiriusXM Sports Podcast Network. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today wherever you stream your podcasts.